This week, the defence review to end all defence reviews. From commanding the troops to County Hall, a second career for a former Major General. And sabotage on the high seas. The techno-pirates are here. I'm Kate Chabot and this is SITREP. Prime Minister Boris Johnson has launched what he claims is the biggest review of foreign defence and security policy since the end of the Cold War. Downing Street said it would go beyond the usual parameters of a strategic defence and security review. So what does that mean for the armed forces? Well, there's already talk of more money to be spent on defence, but this may not be spent in the traditional way. Well, I'm joined by Lucy Fisher, defence editor at The Times, Professor Michael Clark, who's Distinguished Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Lucy Fisher, nothing like this has been seen before. What does number 10 want out of it? Well, I think um, what, what Downing Street um, really wants out of this is to reset British foreign policy. I think there is a sense that um, after Brexit, um, we need to um, think from first principles again about where Britain will be in the world and if indeed there will be an opportunity for Boris Johnson to pursue his vision for a global Britain. And who is deciding the questions that need to be asked here? Well, it's actually a massive team. It's, um, as I understand it, about 30 um, civil servants, senior civil servants uh, and uniformed officers across Whitehall, as well as a number 10 um, task force that will be overseeing it. Um, it, it will be uh, a very deep, um, in-depth review as far as it can be given the constraints of the timetable. There are concerns that have been raised since the initial uh, official announcement of the review that there's only going to be about five or six months to do this. The blueprint for this review had been the George Robertson review of 1997 to 8, and that took over 12 months. So the idea of trying to squeeze this into less than half that time will be a challenge. Indeed, yes, it is a tall order. Just talk us about talk to us about Professor John Bew. Uh, who is this man, and what does he want to happen? When does it all happen? Well, he is a very highly um, rated um, academic. Um, he is the biographer of Clement Attlee, but his um, primary um, academic focus is on foreign policy. He came into Downing Street last summer um, to be Boris Johnson's foreign policy advisor, and he will very, very much be steering um, this review um, from Number 10's point of view. Obviously, we will see people, uh, officials at the highest level from the Foreign Office, Ministry of Defence, Department for International aid and uh, the Home Office also feeding in. He's got a particular interest in uh, rail politic and I think we might see some sort of sense of um, updating the pragmatism of British foreign policy. One of the things that the uh, Downing Street has said in announcing this review is that there needs to be a reappraisal of the balancing of British values with British interests abroad. I don't think we're going to see the, the government step away from some of the values-based um, underpinnings of foreign policy, such as um, pegging defence spending uh, to 2% of GDP, or indeed the aid budget to 0.7% uh, gross, gross national income. But that said, I think at the same time, we've got to recognise the fact that the US is pursuing an America first strategy, and Britain needs to pursue its interests and not just values abroad going forward. Mm -hmm. Professor Michael Clark, um, will it truly be different from anything we've seen in a decade, do you think? 
Well, it will be if they do it correctly. I mean, in, in principle, this is what they always do in reviews. They say, look, we take it from the centre, we decide on our fundamental strategic orientation, and then we we run it down to the Ministry of Defence and the Foreign Office and the Home Office who work it out. But, of course, it never really does work that way, partly because there's an imbalance here. The Ministry of Defence always gets on with it early because it has to. It's spending £40 billion worth, so there's a lot of downstream consequences of everything the MOD decides to do. And what normally happens is that the MOD works on these things early and quite urgently, and then quite late in the day, the Foreign Office and the Home Office throw their two penneth in, and the whole thing get, gets a bit messy. And it, it always ends up as we're driven more bottom up than top down. So what the, this review is saying is we really mean it this time. We are really going to drive it top down from the centre and we're going to do it quite quickly. Mm. So if they if they can achieve that with the right sort of personnel and are not afraid to take some unpopular decisions, yes, we might end up with the review that we always said we were going to have but never really had. Christopher Lee, I mean, I get the sense we've heard this before that we're, we really, really mean it. I mean, do you think that historically this is going to be a significant defence review? White Clark's got it right. Um, if they do it properly, if they get it right, and that's number 10, and if they've got the guts to get it right, and the uh, MOD don't uh, sort of mess it up as well, I think this could be something much bigger, much longer to the view than anything we've had before. It is in a strange sort of way the, 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 the tap over the end of British imperial history, where British defence is based on that. British defence policy is still based in, in, in those forgotten years. Um, it, it, there are two things here. One is, do you get the, do you allow the, how much strength do you allow the chiefs of staff to have? Do you do the traditional thing uh, and say, right, well, you, we, we've got to have 2%, well, that's all agreed. Um, we've still got to have a few tanks and we've got to have two carriers, etc. Or does somebody come along? And say, listen, forget that. Almost as if the chiefs of staff, you know, just you just go and leave for a bit. We are going to tell you how we want Britain to be in the next ten years, what we want Britain to be about, and once we've decided what Britain looks like, we then come over the road and say, now you show us what sort of military we think you can have to mm. to guarantee that it is that big. It is deciding in some ways Britain's position in the world. Yeah, on that note, Lucy Fisher, you mentioned about resetting the pragmatism of British foreign policy. Um, what would that involve exactly, do you think? Well, um, I, I think it does mean, uh, in essence, that savings are going to really have to be found um, in, in parts of the British forces and the equipment plan. You know, we've had the report out today from the National Audit Office pointing out that there is a, a funding black hole of up to 13 billion in the MOD's 10-year equipment plan. And Walmart number 10 has said that this overarching review will not be cross-neutral, um, thereby signaling that there will be a bit more money um, to go around in all likelihood. There's that sort of funding black hole to contend with. And I think it's the reality is it's somewhere in the middle of, of the of the options that, that Christopher laid out. It's not that the chiefs of staff are going to be expected to go on holiday, but rather I think that they are prepped and primed for um, having to grapple with a slightly harsher um, reality. Uh, and I think that there is an acceptance in the MOD that there will have to be difficult decisions made. Um, I'm certainly aware that one of the options under review is um, a cut to the standing army. It may be that we see fewer tanks and armoured vehicles as well. That's the sort of territory we're in. 
Unfortunately, while I think that there is a lot of concern about the money sunk on the two aircraft carriers, the general consensus is that that money has already been spent. There's no one you could realistically sell the second carrier to. So I don't expect we'll see um, we'll see this being a particularly um, harsh review for the Navy. Mm. Uh, it was mentioned um, having the guts to get it right. Professor Michael Clark, who needs to have the guts and how do they get it right? Well, one of the things, as, as Lucy mentioned there, I think one of the things they've got to grapple with is the army. The 82,000 is the army number. Now, that is the wrong number. I and mean, privately, everybody knows that. Whatever the right figure is, it's not 82,000. Because if the army is to simply provide one combat division, then you don't need 82,000. But if the army is to do a range of things, then you need rather more than 82,000. So you're either talking about an army of perhaps 60,000 or an army of 120, 130,000. But 82 is, is not one, neither one thing nor the other which leaves the army very, very vulnerable. Now, somebody's got to grasp that nettle. And I think, again, Lucy's right. We've got the two carriers. We're going to have those now for the best part of 50 years. So we've got to be able to do something with them that, that links into global Britain. Um, but overall, somewhere in the budget, we've got to try to either increase the budget to spend on new technologies. And remember, too, that if we went from 2% of GDP on defence to 3% of GDP on defence, that would be about $20 billion a year, which is a lot of money, but at least half of that would disappear more or less immediately in the first three or four years, just making good the holes which are in the budget at the moment. So you'd have to spend about $20 billion a year more in order to start to feel the benefit in years three, four and five with really new technologies. So these are big issues. And if, if the government's going to grasp them and be brave, that's great. But we all kind of expect that they'll find ways of, of not grasping those issues. Absolutely right, Mike. And the, the point is, we are already sounding, aren't we, like any other defence review. We're talking about defence spending as we've got it, equipment as we've got it. We've got two aircraft carriers. You can't flog one of them off, so you put it into refit for one, you know, for two years while the other one you go go around giving impressions of force projection you've got to ask this very simple question um, you have the defense of what you have and should you keep it should they still have it you you can actually say if Britain is going to decide as the as the likes of, uh, of Dominic coming uh, the financial uh, the, the, the the advisor to the Prime Minister says if you're going to decide what Britain's going to look like, what it's going to feel like, and we're going through the most amazing changes because the coincidence of all this is probably coincidence, coincidental with, for example, the chain, change in society, with a new monarch, for example, that Britain's in, in going through all the, all the basics of the discussions of the, of the further Brexit projects. We are going to be different organisations, a different country doing different things. Are we going to simply sort of juggle, end up juggling with what we've always done and with, with what we've got? Uh, not necessarily in terms of how much is spent, but in fact just juggling with the, the, in terms of equipment, where we deploy it, etc. Or are we actually going to say, Britain does not look like this anymore. Britain doesn't do it like this anymore. Therefore, the military side of it has got to fit in so it can guarantee the new identity of the United Kingdom. Lucy Fisher, in that light, bringing in someone like Professor John Bew, how do you think that is going to impact on, on the planning, on the strategic thinking? Well, I think he is a very strategic um, thinker. Um, you know, he has got a grounding in foreign policy. And I think we have to, you know, review or think of this review in the light of Brexit. You know, we have, for the main part, outsourced diplomacy um, to Brussels and sent all our best people in the foreign um, office to Brussels um, in recent decades to try and bring our influence to bear there. 
we now need to um, not only think about how we use hard power uh, uh, to project um, influence abroad, but soft power. And I think a big part of this review might actually involve um, looking at how we boost um, our diplomatic footprint uh, around the world in the light of um, leaving the EU and having previously relied on on, e, on EU uh, embassies and, um, uh, and influence. So I think he will be strategic and it will be um, a deeper and broader review than simply the, the recent SDSRs we saw in 2015 and 2010. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, Lucy Fisher from The Times, thank you very much for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, piracy, the 17th century crime that's a 21st century problem thanks to new technology. John Henderson is a former Major General who was once the commander of British forces Germany. When he left the army, he got a job running a county council and he's found it's not that different. Sean Grezczak has been to see him. John Henderson's military career saw him command on operations in Afghanistan, Bosnia and Iraq. But his life now couldn't be more different. He swapped command centres for council chambers. As the chief executive of Staffordshire County Council, he's responsible for managing the day-to-day -day running of it on behalf of its councillors. His last job in the military was as Major General commanding the British forces in Germany. Yeah, it is really interesting that, that, that many of the factors and the decisions I was making as General Officer Commanding in British forces Germany are, have great similarities and read across to what I'm now doing as chief executive of Staffordshire County Council. What surprised you when you, you took up this job? I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. Um, I, I applied for the job uh, from a newspaper advert, would you believe? People assumed that I would be quite directive and I would, you know, there was a, the, the local media ran newspaper stories about drill parades and um, firing squads and, and all this stuff. And I, I think some people thought, well, oh, I wonder what's, going to, what's he going to be like? Um, and, and I often got told after a number, you know, sometimes say, you know what we expected. Um, said, well, what were you expecting? You know, and that's quite an interesting conversation around, you know, what, what was, what were the perceptions? And I think that's something the army has to work on. And I, and I sometimes use it with army audiences and say, the army has a problem in that Britain's best-known army officer is a fictitious bank manager. You know, and if you think Captain Mannering is a good role model for your second career, we need to talk. <laughs> He's been in posts now for nearly half a decade, but why local government? I always wanted to have a cr proper crack at a second career. I always wanted to be able to say, I did this and then I did that. So I was very fortunate. I left the army as a very happy ex-general you because I just, you know, that was, I walked out the door having really enjoyed the job in Germany and I enjoyed all the jobs up till then. But that's what I wanted. That, I got to the point where I said, that's, that's all I want to do. I came to this job and, you know, I didn't know what, I suppose I knew what to expect because actually British Forces Germany was in large part a local authority. So I understood the concepts of housing and transport and social care and, and things like that. His role sees him liaising with a wide range of teams across the local authority and the initial feedback from his approach to the new job when asked was enlightening. After six months, I did a 360 assessment because I wanted to see how I was landing. And I, although I'd never been someone who was, you know, shouting and screaming when I was in the military, 
I had slightly backed off a little bit, you know, just been a bit more quiet, maybe a little bit more. Uh, and the feedback universally from after six months was, nice chap, when's he going to get going? Um, and then, so I went, okay. So I went back to how I'd been before, and they went, oh, great, he's here. And so I think, you know, message to other service leavers is, if, if your leadership style works in a service environment, it's pretty good guess that it's going to work outside as well. And what would your message be to anyone who is in the forces right now considering that, that next career? Well, I'd say just give it a go. And, and you know, get out there and, and, and actually you know, find, the, find the recruitment consultants who, are, who deal in this business. And there's, you know, there's a number who are specialists in it. You know, dead easy to find on the internet. Look at the jobs that are available. Speak to the recruiters. Uh, and actually, I find you know, the recruiters are really keen. You know, to they're always the recruiters are keen to. Uh, you might say challenge their clients and say, okay, so here's someone a bit different. And that was really why I was put in the mix. Was the recruiter looked down the list of CVs and said, well, we'll put him in the mix, see how he gets on. And it turned out we got on really well. His days in uniform are long gone, but of the two jobs, which one would he pick? I'm going to pass on that. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, John Henderson speaking to Sean Greschak as part of a week of special programming on BFBS looking at life after service. Well, Professor Michael Clark is still with us, as is Christopher Lee. Uh, Michael Clark, interesting that he said uh, during that interview that he, he initially changed his leadership style to fit into the civilian world, but actually he found that his military training was ideal for the highest civilian posts. Yeah, absolutely. I've had that sort of conversation with people in industry over many years because they say, look, the British military have got this happy compromise or this happy mixture where you've got top-down mission command. Commanders understand, make clear what your objectives are, say it clearly so that everybody knows what you want the situation to be in six months' time or a year's time, whatever, and then bottom-up initiative with a relatively no-blame culture. So people try things and they try and fit in to that mission command. This, this great blend of top-down and bottom-up uh, ideas. And when I talk to people in the industry, they say, oh, yes, but that's, the, the military has spent generations developing that. And they say, no, they haven't. They weren't any good at it in the Second World War. The British military didn't develop these more what you call modern management techniques really until the last couple of generations in the military terms. It didn't really start till the 60s. So you can build it in the short term. There's nothing sort of culturally, historically deterministic about this because the British military in the Second World War was totally top down. It was totally inflexible and it suffered from it. A lot of people died because of it they've got through that now and i think the british military in general is a really good example mm. of the best way to manage individuals to manage people which of course is what success is really all about but actually christopher i suppose john henderson was quite a loss to the military well yeah in that sense he got as far as a two star i suppose that's enough mm. um but i'll tell you i remember reading some, some stuff from wiggins teep i think it was the paper people who pointed out about when employing uh, military at all sorts of level and that was whether you're going to employ somebody to do security or middle management and bring them up in. And that is that the, the British military, uh, especially the army, tend to look the part. Mm. And people need to be led. And they like to look around and see who's the leader. And something like John, John Henson, I mean, he may have been sort of 10 years out, he still looks like a two-star. 
Now, is new technology making it easier for pirates to operate at sea? Ten years ago, reports of pirates operating off the coast of Somalia were common. At the time, it was thought the battle against them could be won with high-tech systems designed to deter their attacks. But now, it seems, the technology may be on their side. Ed Jennings reports. Back in 2009, the then US Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton, announced a new plan to thwart the pirates that were operating off the coast of Somalia. She described piracy as a 17th century crime which needed 21st century solutions. But is that still the case? My name's Elaine Murphy and I'm Associate Professor of Maritime History at the University of Plymouth. Uh, my particular specialism is piracy and privateering in the 1600s. Well, I suppose one of the things history teaches us about piracy and looking at the modern problem is how difficult is it to eradicate. You could probably, if there was political will and no shortage of money, go into somewhere like Somalia or any other modern piracy problem and eliminate it but it'll just pop up somewhere else. And that's always historically what's happened with piracy. It, it's never fully eradicated. World navies can police the seas up to a point, but they can't be everywhere all the time. Uh, my name's uh, Jim Hilton. I'm the managing director of Protection of Vessels International, um, where our main... Uh, focus is providing armed security teams for commercial shipping transiting the Indian Ocean high-risk area. I do think that you know the contribution that the private sector has had to helping the um, the, the the naval effort to get on top of the problem can't be underestimated. And uh, yeah, putting armed guards on ships, you know, it, it it was an effective deterrent. Now that the threat in the Indian Ocean has decreased. I asked Jim Hilton where he thinks the threat will be coming from next. There are some plans. Obviously, there's, there's been a, a significant uptick in uh, pirate uh, attacks and activity in the Gulf of Guinea. And we've got an opportunity to um, build a capability in that part of the world. And, and you know, our intention is to, uh, to start um, executing that plan over the course of the next few months. But, you know, even if piracy was to go away, I think you know, maritime trade, that's certainly not going away. And you know, there is, you know, geopolitically, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. The opportunity, I think, from emerging markets that are trying to raise the standards of their maritime infrastructure and uh, the security. Um, there's a lot of um, risk management around that process. But what are the risks of using technology in this way? Professor Kevin Jones is the head of the Maritime Cyber Threats Research Group at the University of Plymouth. Now we're looking specifically at analysing real vulnerabilities in genuine ship setups. Then we'll craft particular tools to explore how vulnerable they are and then sort of play through those scenarios, which is of course what you can cause to happen by a cyber attack. Then you have to know how to respond. At the military end of the spectrum, you know, traditional electronic warfare, electronic countermeasures, sort of in the radio spectrum are well understood. But things like implanted malware, not so much. That hasn't been looked at to anywhere near the same level of detail. Small boat coming alongside a vessel, transmitting fake GPS signals, maybe to get it to sort of deviate from track. That's quite straightforward. 
the cyber attack would be more along the lines of by some mechanism, either through a communication channel or through installed malware during an update or something, having remote access to the IIS, the ECDIS, anything else, and deliberately producing false information. So, I mean, from a terrorist perspective, running a tanker aground, causing an oil spill, closing a port, you know, all of those would be similar mechanisms, different outcomes. And if you compromise about five systems, and we do know how to do all of that, you could close San Francisco down for a week. So something that sort of was a mode of piracy, went away because of technology, has now come back because of technology. And a lot of the capability to do these things is very much within reach of the kind of organizations that might want to do it. So it seems 21st century solutions also bring 21st century risks. Piracy can't be consigned to the history books just yet and may well continue to cause problems for the mariners for years to come. And we're joined by Ed Jennings, who produced that report. Um, Ed, when you hear about San Francisco being shut down for a week, it's a frightening thought. Well, economically, that would be a massive impact. I mean, it really could go to that, could it, according to what Kevin Jones says? Well, he's he's been running the experiments, and they're not simulations done on a computer. This is with real-world equipment and real crews. They all have a qualified skipper in there, perhaps with cadets to man things, but they'll, they're running these experiments as if it's an actual ship and it is as far as he is uh, found in results possible to ground vessels with the most high-tech sort of uh, navigational systems on board so just supposing uh, an enemy state or, or a terrorist organization were able to get control can they literally gain control of the navigation of a ship and, and drive it into something well it's not so much that they're gaining control of the vessel it's they're gaining control of the systems that that allow the people to drive it, sorry, to allow the people that navigate it to drive it. So by changing that, they're able to confuse where they think they are and where they think the land is. Everything's electronic now. The, the, the days of paper charts have gone. So on one level, and they break things down into different criminal or active uh, groups in their experiments, on one level they can sort of infect an entire port system because all the port systems now are integrated with if you think about container ships and the cranes everything's mm. computerized where everything goes so on a cyber attack it's, it's making it impossible to operate the systems rather than actually necessarily stealing the ship however he's also saying that it's entirely possible that a small boat with a small amount of equipment cheaply made can make a ship lie about its location for want of a better term so that any rescue attempts coming in to defeat pirates will be going to the wrong area in the ocean. Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, how soon do you think we're going to see the effects of the use of this technology? Uh, quite soon, I think, because as we say, that it's all around now. It's not. It's it's not um, really difficult stuff to get hold of, and it has given a new dimension to piracy. Because until even you know ten or fifteen years ago, twenty-first um, and twentieth-century piracy was very similar to sixteenth-seventeenth-century piracy, which was an attempt to capture ships and capture the cargo and to do it through fear and threat 
uh, and to actually give yourself a reputation so that ship's crews didn't put up a fight. But the idea of cyber piracy is really rather different. You know, the attempt to create, you know, groundings or to put ships in the wrong place or to, in a sense, hold a port to ransom through electronic methods, that's different. Mm-hmm. And that, in a way, is, is, a, is a new form of piracy, which doesn't necessarily depend on what happens on the land. You know, traditionally, piracy on the high seas is always dominated by some condition on the land. It's people who are driven to piracy or fancy their chances. This is something, this is a new type of crime. And I think, um, as your report says, we're likely to see the, the real effects of it in the next one to two decades, for sure. Christopher Lee, do um, you think this is going to be a big part of the thinking in the Defence Review? Uh, I wouldn't have thought it was much in the defence review, but it certainly it certainly is in in defence uh, thinking of what assets do you have, and what assets can you actually sort of think in let's say five ten years uh, to to get into the piracy game in a, in a different way than we are now. We have not, for example, the Royal Navy has not the numbers of ships, any ships in fact that could go out and that can defend vessels beyond the Straits of Hormuz. It can't get into the Straits in, in the Bay of Benin, for example, where a lot of the piracy that goes on now takes place. Can't get into mm. the Malacca Straits. Um, and so you're not able to defence your vessels in the normal way. Ed Jennings, in researching this project, was there anything in particular that, that surprised you? Well, um, it's interesting. The, the the first speaker on there, Elaine, was talking about how piracy ever only ever moves. It, it sometimes changes an element of its nature, and as uh, as one of the other speakers has just said, it it it, um, it does depend on how the 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 political situation is ashore. However, now a couple of smart people with a laptop can do that. That asymmetric warfare can mm. make a massive difference on huge scales. Mm. Christopher, uh, where do you think we're, we're, we're going to see the next development in this, uh, countering this threat? Well, the other side of this is, is, is the monitoring, being able to monitor through, whether it be satellite monitoring or whatever, it's being able to monitor where ships are independently from where the ship thinks it is, for example. If you can put a ship off, off, off course, then you've got a centre which, which has a glass eye over the vessels, and you can say, that ship which is reporting all the time in every 30 minutes is not where it says it is. And that's the next stage. Well, that's it for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and to you for listening. Join the discussion on Twitter. Join us at BFBS Sitrep. For me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.